think one of the things that was really eye-opening to me as I've been reading and listening and trying to learn about this over the last couple of years is to realize that the stories that we listen to and we digest all the time about the way it is between men and women is such a a Freudian sexual narrative. It's the theme of The Office. It's the theme of uh, all of the love songs. It's the theme of our movie arcs is that everything is leading to the moment. And the church has come to very different conclusions about what we should do about that story. But we've shared the same assumptions. We have shared the assumption that men and women together always leads to spark. And whereas uh, the office says it's good and you should cheer for it, the church has said it's good if it lands you up with the one, but in all other circumstances, stay the heck away. <laughs> and I, I am convinced that that story has not served us well. I've been in the church for better or for worse my whole life. And relationships between men and women in the church, I've observed that whole time, can be really, really awkward and strange and strained and full of fear and weird. And I've often wondered, when are we ever going to get over some of that awkwardness? <laughs> well, my guest today, Bronwyn Lee, wrote a book that's really, really good and really, really helpful called Beyond Awkward Side Hugs, Living as Christian Brothers and Sisters in a Sex-Crazed World. And Bronwyn and I got to really talk about what's behind the fear of men and women working together, serving together, having close relationships with each other. What's behind some of the odd rules in the church about sex and about sexuality and what's a better vision so i hope you enjoy this conversation and then i hope you go out and get her book beyond awkward side hugs enjoy bronwyn hello it is so good to have you on the podcast thanks for coming on Thanks so much, Steve. I I possibly am the slowest RSVP to a podcast invitation ever since you asked me to talk to you about this two years ago, and <laughs> it just took this long to get to a book and a conversation. Oh, I completely will take all the blame for that. I I I remember <laughs> it like oh shoot, you know I I let, I mean we went back and forth several times for about two years um, since mm -hmm. seeing each other at um um. Now I can't even remember the name of the event. We're, we're, the festival. We're, the, festival the festival for faith and writing. Faith and yes, writing. Mm -hmm. is when we met first, um, and I loved meeting you. And um, I think we hugged. I think we had a real hug. I don't think I it was think a we side did. hug. <laughs> uh, so that was fun, and it was just. And then from and then reading, getting to read your book before it came out, and I think it's just. We need more of this conversation. What is it? What does sexuality look like in the church? What does it look like between men and women who aren't married? How do we? Because there's still just so much, I think, shame around this topic, and so much misinformation. So I am so glad that you wrote this book, and it is so good. Um, before we get into the book, though, Bronwyn, can you tell us just a little bit of your like? your background growing up, what was faith like when you were growing up? Um, and, um, 
and what is faith like now? I know that's such a broad question. So just, you know, give us, give us the thumbnail sketch, maybe. The, the cliff notes. Yeah. All right. Well, um, this strange way of speaking that you all are hearing is a South African accent, as I know it, where I was born and raised. Um, I did not come from a believing family. Uh, but when I was pretty young, my dad for a season went to church and I went to Sunday school and in Sunday school was introduced to um, a God who would never leave us or forsake us. And I really needed that kind of family security while my my parents were in the middle of a divorce. Um, and so I became a Christian at the tender age of six and was really nurtured in my faith growing up <clears throat> by the Sunday school teachers and the youth group leaders because that they were the voices and the shepherds in my life growing up. Then went to college, uh, landed up um, marrying a guy who had his eyes on a PhD and decided to do that in the States. And so 16 years ago, um, I followed along to make the sandwiches on the journey while he mm -hmm. went to grad school. Mm -hmm. And uh, we thought we'd just be here for three years, but we have now been here for 16 and have had our kids here. And I was in vocational ministry in South Africa. I had been to law school and then to seminary and was working in a church in South Africa. And then when I got here, um, went back to doing college ministry, which is uh, something I'd done before. Thought I would, again, just be doing that for two or three years, but have landed up staying at that church and am still on the pastoral staff um, at my current church. Um, and I have a, a variety of uh, like uh, faith traditions involved in my life. If you want to know that part yeah, of the story, um, I went to I went to Catholic school for a while. Um, played the organ in mass at the yeah. age of like eight, <laughs> nine, and ten. My little yeah. legs, my little feet couldn't even touch the organ pedals. Like I used to play the up and you know the upper and lower deck of the organ, and my 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 piano teacher used to play the pedals. Um, so there was that. Um, then I was at a sort of a Pentecostal church for a while, a Methodist youth group. Dated a guy in college who was super Calvinist and reformed. Uh -oh. and so, Went that way for a year. You know, I am so grateful that um, for the years that I was with him because I really came to understand salvation by grace yeah. in a way that I had not before. Like yeah. I had always believed that Jesus was my savior, but I didn't really mm. understand what I was saved from. Yeah. Um, and that really made grace sweet to me. Mm. I, I, I would never undo that. That is that so was wonderful. That was really rich and beautiful time. Yeah. Um. Landed up in an Anglican church, an wow. African Anglican church, which is the denomination in which I studied and went to seminary and where I started landing up working. And then came across to the States and uh, we landed up at a Baptist church. Um, <laughs> uh, and a large Baptist church compared to the church that I had come from. I had gone from sort of very small Anglican flock to a large, pretty business feeling Baptist yeah. church, which was a big surprise. Yeah. Um, and now I'll end up, I, I work there part-time and I also work for Propel Women, which is a very, you know, ecumenically diverse group of women that's being served. And I can see how God has stitched together just all of these different experiences, not just with different churches, but actually with different churches in different countries to say, Hey, I am actually at work in a number of ways and places um, that might surprise you. Mm -hmm. And it's been good. Oh, that sounds so rich that the moving from, you know, Catholic to Pentecostal to Reformed to Anglican to Baptist, how do you think that all those experiences have shaped 
sort of who you are and how you believe? I think I am by nature a very black and white person. Mm. I like answers to be concrete. And I think God has just put me in enough different circumstances now for me to say uh, that his boundaries are bigger than my boundaries. Mm. And, um, and for me particularly to understand the importance that language plays in the way that we define truth. You know, like every faith tradition that we have um, has its own words that it uses. And it, it's like we know who are our people by the words that they use. Right. Um, <laughs> everybody yes. has got their keywords. Yes. And if you if you say the wrong words, then, then people are not sure if your faith is genuine or if you are a wolf coming in yes. from the side. Like our feeling of familiarity or foreignness with other people's faith experience so often has to do with the language that they're using to describe God. Mm-hmm worship, whatever the case may be. Um, so I think at this point, I'm a words person and I, um, I am realizing that God is a God of words and that there is a depth and texture mm. to, um, to God, which language kind of reveals. Um, but there are lots of different ways of looking at his solid, unchangeable truth. I'm not saying that everything is relative. I'm yeah. not saying, you know, we're all doing semantic shift. I'm just saying, just like there's different accents to pronounce a word, I think that God's truth can be spoken in different accents. And it's kind of fun if you can train your ear to listen to it. I love that, Bronwyn. I mean, and I agree with that wholeheartedly, that it takes a diversity of language and ways of understanding a God that is ultimately different, you know, and, um, and in some ways mysterious. Right. Um, and I think that keeps us humble. Don't you think? I mean, that, that keeps me humble. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just, no one gets to just claim that they have hundred percent of it all nailed down. You know, if, if there's, mm -hmm. if there needs to be a diversity, I really like oh, that. Absolutely. You know, I, I remember one of my professors at seminary saying to us, you must become familiar with the idiom of your king. And what he meant in that context was, you know, Jesus's words and language might be sometimes difficult for us to understand because he talks about, you know, wailing in outer darkness and yeah, yeah. mustard seeds and yeah. um, hating your family and, you know, yes. And fig trees and yeah. like just images and language that aren't used. And it's so easy to just ignore that right over it because we don't understand what he's saying and just go to the bit that we know, like, mm -hmm. Oh, I understand what the way, the truth and the life is. We'll just go with what we know. But right from then, um, him saying, you need to pay attention and be humble, humble yourself to learn what he's trying to say here, mm -hmm. because there's truth there. And I've come back to that again and again. And I came back to it again and again, writing this book saying, wow, there's been a way that I've been taught to read the New Testament, a way that I've been taught to read scripture, but I want to pay attention to the idiom of my king. And I want to pay attention to um, the way that the New Testament is describing our life. And I realized, gosh, I have just been glossing over the fact that the New Testament primarily addresses us using family language. Mm. And I just haven't heard that taught a great deal. I've heard the, you know, scriptures taught to me as an individual. I haven't taught it, heard it taught to men and women who are brothers and sisters in the family of God. And if I pay attention to that language, if I pay attention to that idiom, how does that change the way that I understand scripture? And how does that change and shape the way that I live the life of faith? And the answer is massively. Yes, yes. 
so well let's let's get into your book um it's called beyond awkward side hugs love the title then the subtitle (laughs) living as christian brothers and sisters in a sex crazed world and so i wonder like when did this first began to take shape in you was it when you started to see the language of family in the new testament or was it earlier or later when did this book first started to germinate in you uh I think I started to notice the language much later. I think this book is born out of 20 years of awkward conversations that I've had with fellow believers, because at this point I have served in college ministry and in young adult groups and with um, women's ministry and often, you know, wives and moms. And I am now the pastor of discipleship um, at my church. And so men and women are in my care. And technically my job is spiritual formation and the life of faith. And yet so many of my actual conversations have to do with working out the nitty gritty of everyday relationships. Yeah. Can I be friends? Can I date? Well, uh, how do I handle my marriage? How do I handle this context with this person at work who wants to talk to me? Like just so much of the spiritual life and seeking wisdom has had to do with lived out relationships. I mean, hundreds, hundreds of conversations uh, with readers on email, um, pastorally, and just with people, you know, sitting in my kitchen saying, so I read this thing Uh and it had this advice and I need someone to process with. And over the years of like digging in the scriptures with people, this is what has come out. Um, Realizing, oh, actually scripture has a bunch of wisdom and guidelines for relationships that are not marriage relationships and a bunch of guidelines on community living between men and women. And it's, it's not true that all the Christian faith has to offer is don't have sex to teens and then live your best hot sex life with your Christian spouse. Like those are not the only two pieces of wisdom we have about men and women. Okay. I I want to go deeper into that because really when I read that parts early on in your, in your book, it's in the first couple chapters, but when you revealed the, the sort of the church messaging mm-hmm. uh, that gets given to people before they get married, that it's either a romance story or a danger story, and those are the two options. That, and you just you just alluded to it, but could you could you dress that out a little bit more? Because that's one hundred percent the message I was given growing up is it was going to go one of the two, one of those two ways, and it <laughs> and it didn't. <laughs> for me anyway. No, I think, I think one of the things that was really eye-opening to me as I've been reading and listening and trying to learn about this over the last couple of years is to realize uh, how post-Freudian our world is. Um, and just that the stories that we listen to and we digest all the time about the way it is between men and women is such a a Freudian sexual narrative. We just, it's, it's the theme of the office. It's the theme Mm. of uh, all of the love songs. It's the theme of our movie arcs is that everything is leading to the moment, you know, the kiss, the climax, whatever the case Mm -hmm, may be. mm -hmm. Um, And that even friendships between men and women um, are seen as on ramps towards romance. Mm -hmm. Um, And the church has come to very different conclusions about what we should do about that story. But we've shared the same assumptions. We have shared the assumption that men and women together always leads to spark. Mm-hmm. And whereas uh, the office says it's good and you should cheer for it, the church has said it's good if it lands you up with the one, but in all other circumstances, stay the heck away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, 
I am convinced that that story has not served us well. For one thing, rules don't keep us from sin. Like we actually need character and wisdom for that. And also there are 95 other situations uh, for every one or two of those, which, mm-hmm. um, which those rules don't cover, which I still need wisdom for and I still need guidance for. And that, that I, we just need to reject the idea that the only way it is, um, the only way it can be between a man and a woman is the story of chemistry for for better or for worse like song of songs says that is part of how it can be for men and women it can be you know sexy and spark mm-hmm. um it can be dangerous and it can be great but there's also a whole a lot of life in which we live as men and women that doesn't have to do with sexual spark mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch of other loves the scripture calls us to that are not eros love mm-hmm. um that we need to live into and so there's just more it's not that the sex story is wrong because that that happens. It's just so narrow and so incomplete and only speaks to a small part of what it is to be made as men and women in the image of God. Mm. Well, thank you so much for saying that so well. I think um, I have I have experienced it myself and I've talked to so many people over the years as a pastor who got burned by believing that even if they waited and they both waited and then they were promised a you know gold standard sex life <gasps> and married as Christians and mm. it was awful and horrible and they felt right. so defective and what did we do wrong and what you know and also people who didn't wait and are fine and people who didn't wait um and feel the tremendous shame about that from which they can never climb out you know so mm-hmm. Um, even as it relates to just, even as it relates to sex, that those stories are so damaging. Um, yeah. Not to and mention, it, go ahead. I was going to say it's this: the underlying Christian way of looking at it is is that we treat people as if they have no sexuality, mm. um, and then it just is a switch that gets flipped on uh, on the day that you get married. Yeah, um, and that doesn't work for all the reasons that you have. <laughs> Uh, spoken about because actually sexuality is something we need to steward and come to terms with our whole lives it's something we're born with and it's something that jesus is familiar with jesus had to steward his own sexuality jesus had to deal with hormones jesus had to deal with cute girls like jesus had to deal Mm -hmm. with all of these things and so like if we had um just created some space to say wow let's talk about stewarding your sexuality your whole life through and being faithful with your maleness and femaleness through your teen years, through your, you know, your dating time, through your engagement, through your marriage and into widowhood, yeah. you know, presumably one will die before the other. And we still, whether married or single, are fully male or fully female. And we need to steward our sexuality well in mm. those circumstances. The idea that sexuality is about sex um, and not about being <laughs> mm-hmm. is part of what does the damage that you're talking about. Because then people are like, oh, the problem is that I'm having sex or not having sex at the wrong time. And I'm thinking, Mm-mm, Mm-mm. there's a bigger issue here. We actually need to talk about maleness and femaleness and the fact that uh, God, God made that and mm-hmm. he made it good. Mm-hmm. And he has wisdom for us on how to live with it. Well, maybe this would be a good time to ask about you. You write about the difference between social sexuality 
and genital sexuality. Mm-hmm. Would you explain more what you mean by that? Because I think that will help. Sure. Um, so I did not come up with that. That okay. was uh, <laughs> that was something I learned about, particularly reading Deb Hirsch's very excellent book, Redeeming Sex, um, which particularly for Christians wanting to think about um, loving the LGBTQ community well, I highly recommend. Mm. It was just so well written. Um, but she talks about genital um, versus social sexuality. And the idea there is um, similar to what I've been talking about, that we have this presumption that when we talk about sexuality, we are talking about the things that people do with their private parts. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a really, that's, that's genetically expressed sexuality. Actually, uh, my femaleness as a woman doesn't just get kicked into gear uh, in the sexual part of my marriage, right. you know, like I, I am a woman in all my relationships. I am not just a friend. I'm a female friend. I am not a generic parent. I am actually a mother. That is a, that is a gendered relationship. I am, I'm not just a child of my parents. I'm a daughter and my sexuality comes into a parent child relationship you know, where I'm the child, it comes into my relationship with my children. It, it finds its way into friendship. I'm an employee and a female employee at that. Um, and that's not, that's what we mean by social sexuality. It's uh, the male and female parts of ourselves that we are in every other relationship, regardless of whether actual sex is happening. Um, but just to broaden that conversation up and acknowledge that that's part of who we are. In every interaction that we have, that's part of who we are. Yes. Thank you for that. Um, I was hoping we, we could go there. Um, I, I also want to go to a place, because, and I think it's connected to this, because fear is just, it seems to be behind a whole lot of, of the misinformation and damage. Uh, and one of the quotes, and you, you referenced this maybe 10 minutes ago, but I want to go there. Uh, one of the quotes I love from your book, uh, so you say, or you write, and I quote, cultivating a fear of sin is never going to be enough to keep us from bad choices. So I, th- I think I can understand what that means, and most listeners do too. What is the alternative, right? So like, <laughs> let's, you know, so let's say you're even sitting with one of your young adults at church and you're having an expansive kind of conversation that goes beyond just avoid doing these things and try doing these things. Where do you, how do you help people uh, begin to get an integrated view of sexuality? Mm, that's such a great question. You know, the, the experiment that they did years ago when there were people driving on a, like a precision driving course and they'd put all of those orange cones down the yeah. marker and uh, they told people to avoid the cones. Um, the, the rates of even professional drivers trying to avoid the cones still did much more damage than people who were told to drive through the gaps and to focus on Mm, the gaps, mm, right? mm. Um, Because the fact of the matter is whatever you're focusing on still ends up being the direction that you're trying to go in. And so um, this came to mind again when a friend of and I were going to be co-teaching a weekend away for college students on dating and sexuality. 
And he said, you know, I think it's really important to talk about, he's an engineer, so he was like, about failure mode analysis and all the different ways that relationships can go wrong and like lies that we've been told about sexuality and actually yeah. the link to his talk and research with excellent diagrams is in the footnotes of my book. Yes, okay, I can't like, let's wait. Talk, let's talk about this. This is really great. He said, but what, I, what we really need to do is to focus on the wide open spaces between the danger cones and we need mm. to create and paint a compelling, beautiful picture of marriage, of relationships, of community, and of sexuality. Not just what to avoid, but what it is we're aiming for. What did, what's the point? What is it that we're trying to create? And I think that that's been missing in so much of our instruction about sexuality is that we haven't really got an idea that sexuality is something good and that right. there is a beautiful, redeemed version of that um, that scripture calls us to and, and makes possible, that community is possible and beautiful and compelling. And I think if we can locate conversations about our own sexual stewardship within a view of the men and women we're trying to become in Jesus' image, that's a really strong place to focus. Ah, oh, yes. And it's hard to do it. I, I, yes, it's, it's like, you know, I think about the, the Billy Graham rule, quote unquote, where men and women maybe aren't, that aren't your spouses, you don't, you're never together with them one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. And I think that, and I don't want to criticize Billy Graham for whatever he did. Certainly that's not what it's about. But I also know that so much of, um, so much of that is really, I think, based on fear, uh, fear of what's going to happen. And the underlying assumption there, I think, is we're out of control. Like the, the car is spinning out of control and right. we, and there is no way that, um, that we're going to give that any more gas. Cause it's just, it's just, <laughs> but, but I don't I, think the Billy Graham rule came out of fear though. I think even with the Billy Graham rule, yeah. it's worth pointing out that there was a bigger goal that he was serving. Like he had a vision, he and his fellow evangelists for a long term faithful ministry. Yeah. And they, they took stock of things that were filling other traveling evangelists, like fiscal responsibility, irresponsibility, sure. or the trappings of fame, or the trappings of accusations, not even, um, the, actually not even the danger of having an affair, but the appearance of having an affair could fill your ministry. Yeah. And their vision was for what would it take to have this ministry thrive in the long term? Um, and those rules were put in place to serve the good and beautiful vision for the kingdom. And so I, I kind of feel like that's really instructive and helpful to me because I, if people have a vision for, I want to have a long relationship in this community. I want to have a long and happy marriage. This is the kind of man I want to be when I'm older, a person of respect who's able to speak to my peers and my kids. This is the kind of woman I want to be. This is the quality of relationship I want to have. Man, that puts our guidelines into perspective. I, I, I do hear that. And I think I do I, my my pushback, and it is pushback, is mm -hmm. that when men are the ones that hold positions of power mm -hmm. and women aren't allowed to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with those people in power, then it's almost impossible for women to be collaborative, you know, in right. the kind of mm -hmm. ministry that I think is possible so while I don't disagree with you at all about the beautiful vision, I also think it's it's worth pointing out there are some probable probably well there are definitely some uh, 
um, some things that happen as a result mm-hmm. of of maybe even a good a good boundary. I want to. I, I think I just want to say, like, can we get more creative than right? You know, saying well, in you know, response we can never... to your pushback. In yeah. response to your pushback, I want to. I want to draw a distinction here, and this is salient to the pushback and the Billy Graham rule, and that is that you mentioned the power dynamic. Mm-hmm. And I think that so often when we are talking about relationships between men and women and what works and what doesn't work, we're not just talking about uh, male-female interactions. We're actually talking about uh, inequitable power relationships. Yeah. And then it doesn't really matter whether there's men or women. That is, there are different um, levels of vulnerability that come with any power differential, with a youth pastor with their kids, with a pastor with their, you know, they flock with a counselor and the person, what you disclose is not equal. Yeah. And so there are dangers that need to happen, um, that need to be taken care of and safeguards that need to be put in place because of the vulnerability of the person not in power in those conversations, regardless of their gender, right. like youth need to be protected and it's the responsibility of the person in power in that, you know, in the case of the youth pastor or the counselor to protect that conversation because right. the, the other person is emotionally or spiritually um, vulnerable. Right. You know, it's not a mutual disclosure. So I think that with Billy Graham's rule, those often had to do with power differentials. Here's mm. a famous person dealing with not famous people. Right, right. One of them is vulnerable. Or here's a pastor speaking to someone who is sharing the burdens of their life. That's not just about her being female and him being male. That's about the fact that she's sharing her inner world and he's not sharing his. Sure. Um, so in chapter seven of the book, one of the, the distinctions I'm trying to make is that some of the horror stories that we've heard about men and women are not just stories of male-female relationships go wrong. There are stories of power gone wrong. Right, right. The secrecy that comes with power. And so I specifically wanted to say that this book is not about um, authority structures in the church. Mm. This is a book about you and me next to each other in the pew, not Mm. me and the person in the pulpit. Mm. Because the rules that might might apply for the pastor in his Mm. um, relations to his stock, his flock, are not necessarily the same things that would apply if we were sitting and talking over a dinner table. Sure. That's a great clarification for sure. Well, so let's, let's talk about like, what are some hopes that you have for the brothers and sisters sitting in the pews um, in the next 10 years of the church? Cause I think, I mean, I think we're in, in a rapid time of change in the church where lots of things are being, are being made new what what are some things that you hope are made new as it relates to men and women in the church? Goodness. I am so excited about the good that could come from people um, seeing not just permission to be in relationship with their community, but seeing invitation and commission to being in relationship. I am just heartbroken over how many people feel lonely mm. um, and left out. Um, not just single people, but married people who yeah. are lonely <laughs> yeah. and who need more community than they feel that they're allowed. Um, if the story is you're supposed to meet your one and right into the sunset, they're like, I need more people than just my one person. Yes. And I am excited about the idea that if we had eyes to see um, 
the people around us as part of our family, a bigger picture of family. And if we had language for love and intimacy that wasn't sexual, and the Bible is full of language for love and intimacy that isn't sexual, we just right. haven't noticed it. Right. That we could feel a whole lot of creativity and opportunity to welcome people and to live into more nourishing relationships. We should be, um, people can be so creative with mm. their families. Mm. It can be such a place of healing mm. and such a place of belonging. And if we had this biblical framework for the household of God that we belong to, gosh, it would be great to see us live into that identity. It's like the great that comes from us living into our identity as children of God. And you see how people rise up when they realize that they are the beloved children of God, not the shamed, barely tolerated mm. minions of the father, but start living as the beloved and the, yeah. the good that that does. I think that we can have that community level of transformation when we realize, oh, that is that person over there is not an affair waiting to happen. That's mm. actually a brother. Yeah that I get to get to know. And I want to do that wisely. I want to do that well. I want to do that in a holy kind of way. But there's richness there. Mm -hmm. I love that. And especially as it relates to this idea that once you are married as a Christian, that person has to be your everything, you know, your your best friend, your lover, your marriage partner, your financial partner. And you that's do, a lot of pressure. That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> but that's sort of the only alternative if there's all these all these strict, rigid boundaries about who you can and can't have safe relationships with, you know? Um, yeah. And that's what, that's why I spoke to you at the very beginning and told you that I was interested in writing this book because I had been listening to your other podcast, mm -hmm. you know, wow. the strengthening the soul of your leadership that you yeah. were doing with Ruth Haley Barton to whom you are not married. Right. And like the two of you were not talking about male, female relationships. You were talking about, spiritual formation and leadership, but you were modeling what a brother and sister in Christ can do for the kingdom mm. when they're partnering together. And the subtext beneath your text, I thought that is, that is beautiful. Mm -hmm. That is what the family of God could do. If we weren't so afraid of getting a man and a woman in a recording studio together, we could actually let them speak together and feed the church. And it was so beautiful to me to see you and, um, and Ruth, yeah. Had, yeah, Ruth partner in that way. Well, and thank you for, for noticing that. I mean, for me, that's a great example of that when we get to do that together and, and we're still, I mean, we just like, we're still doing that work after all these years, but there is a kind of, um, I, I don't want to call it a spark, but let's call it a spark that I get in sharing ministry with her that really isn't sexual. I mean, I, I don't think she feels it. I don't think I feel it. It's not about that, but it mm -hmm. is, it is exciting and energizing mm -hmm. and I think sacred and holy. And it's, it's beautiful and, and it is boundaried. You know, there, there are places we think things we don't talk about, or play, you know, um, but so, so thanks for bringing that up as a, as a tangible example of the kind of thing that can happen and the good that can come from it when we say, you know, there's a different way of thinking about this <laughs> as brothers and sisters, you know? Um, so thank you for that. Yeah. It's a beautiful example. I'm a very grateful beneficiary of your partnership oh, for the man. gospel. So Bronwyn, um, maybe, maybe one or two more questions, if that's okay. 
Sure. Um, you you mentioned that what who was in your mind it, are are the sort of the the people in the pews. Okay, so um, as you were writing this book, like w- w- how did that picture help you kind of stay focused? Because I know what it's like. It's like my editor is always like Steve. Like write one book, not 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 this book or that book. Four, there's four books coming now. Remember, you're writing this book, you know. And so, and sometimes it's helpful for me to get my picture. So, how did like was it was that what it was like for you? Did you have to return to the person you're writing this for often? And was that helpful? It was really helpful, and perhaps for a surprising reason. I think the hardest part for me about writing this book was figuring out the voice that I wanted to speak in because I'm a nerd. Like I will own the nerdness. Like I went to law school and I, um, I really believe in well-researched work and I really want people not to just take my word for it. I really want to show the biblical basis for things and theological scaffolding, right? It really matters that I'm not just a persuasive person or a likable person but that people are compelled by this because it's in scripture and they can see it for themselves. And so I wanted to, to show um, the framework. But if you write too academic a book, then you're writing it for the ivory tower. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so finding the balance of something that was relevant and relational and funny and conversational, but which also... Uh, was anchored and visibly anchored in scripture mm-hmm. was the tension that I was trying to write between. Cause I can yeah. write a funny op-ed piece. Like sure, sure. I could pretend to be a stand-up comic and, and I have written really heavy research papers, but neither of those were appropriate for this conversation. Mm-hmm. So imagining the people in the pews and mm-hmm. the conversations that I really have had around the kitchen table yeah. um, gave me a voice for if I was talking to a real person at the table and this is the story I would tell. And this is how I would show it to them in scripture. Hmm. Kept it both conversational and grounded. It actually helped me to make it real, but reminded me of my accountability um, in scripture. Well, I think you did a great job balancing those. It's really interesting to hear what you were trying to balance, you know, I'm always <laughs> curious about, because I know there's so much, there's so many things happening in a writer's right. mind and heart and soul and, and, striking the balance of both this and that is always really, really hard. I think you did a really good job. I mean, I, I read it as very accessible, but also astute, you know, like it, it has real weight to it. Um, it, it, it's so. I would have put 500 footnotes in if the editors would have allowed it. Yes. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> yeah. Like we, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I think I, I'm nerdy that way too. Like I really like to, well, but and, and part of it is I want to introduce people to to good source stuff, you know. Um, so I think that's part of the nerdiness too. But yes, I'm I'm all about like many many footnotes and ooh, good lord. Good <laughs> I read lord. all the footnotes. Well, you know, I, in in this last book, I I wrote end notes. Um, like so, we we didn't even like. Uh, anyway, blah, blah, blah. We don't, we don't need to get into that, but, but that was fun. Cause I wrote a little more expansive end notes. Like this is what I liked about this particular resource. And I found that fun. And so I, I like writing them as well. I think they're helpful. And I like reading them as well, because you know, if you're like, oh yes, I love this point footnote. Oh, where'd you get that? Oh, you know, it's like, it's like getting to do a director's cut on your own book. Like here's my yes. commentary. 
country. <laughs> oh, you're so right. You're so right. I hadn't thought about it like that, but that is fun. Um, okay, Bronwyn, well, we are running out of time. Uh, so beyond awkward side hugs, living as Christian brothers and sisters in a sex crazed world. Uh, the book is out now. You can get it wherever you buy books. I've been pointing people to bookshop.org to support independent bookstores because Amazon's not playing nice. I mean, let's just be honest about that, at least with my book. I don't know if it is with your book. You, you can order this on Amazon or through NavPress or uh, bookshop.org. Are there other places you are enjoying sending people to, Bronwyn, to get your book? Uh, Hearts and Minds is a great book, online bookseller. Hearts and um, Minds, got it. I'll mm -hmm. put it in the show notes. Yep. Okay. And uh, if you go to beyondawkwardsidehugs.com, um, there's a little bit more blurb around the book. You can read uh, your lovely endorsement on that page. Yep. <laughs> um, but there's click buttons on all the different places that you can order from. So your online retailer of choice. It's actually available from Target. I mean, go yeah. figure. <laughs> it's so fun. Like I remember when I like realizing, oh my gosh, Target sells my book. Oh, you know, it's like, it was fun. Anyway. Yeah. Um, okay. So I'm going to direct people on the show notes to beyondawkwardsidehugs.com. Is, is that mm -hmm. the best place to sort of go from there? I think that's a great place to go. And if you go to that particular site, you will also be able to download a free first chapter if you want to, oh, want get, to get into started. That, people. Yeah. Otherwise, my own website is bronv.com, which I guess will go in the show notes as well, yep. uh, which has its own links. Okay. And I know you're active on um, Twitter and Instagram as well, right? Mm -hmm. Instagram? Yeah. Okay. I we'll, have an Instagram. Yep. We'll we'll put all the socials for Bronwyn on the show notes and you can get there by going to steveweens.com slash show notes. If you're listening to this later, like years later, like in 2032 or something like that, just search Bronwyn Lee and you'll find it. Uh, um, I know, I'm so silly. Okay, Bronwyn, anything else? Anything you hoped I would ask you that I didn't? You have been a very gracious interview host. No, I can't think of anything. I wish, well, give me five minutes. As soon as we finished recording, I'll be like, dang it. <laughs> just leave a voicemail and I'll just, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just edit it right in. Sounds you know? good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Bronwyn, so much. Number one, for being such a helpful resource in terms of how to do this very important thing well. Thanks for writing this book on behalf of the church, which has a future and you're a part of it. Uh, and thanks for coming on the podcast. I knew it would be fun and it was, it was beautiful and gorgeous and all of the, you're just, you're just, um, I could tell you have so much more underneath, <laughs> you know, that you, you could talk for hours and hours about this. And I wish we had more time. Give um, me a soapbox. So yep, I know, right? <laughs> Well, no, I mean, you can tell you really care about this. And I love talking to people um, that really care about something um, because I think that's the gift that we need to give to the world. We need to, we need to get people talking about that thing that they need, need to talk about, you know, and this is it for you for sure. And I'm sure there's many other things that, um, that you could talk this way about too, but this is a good one. You are, you are a gift to the world, Bronwyn. Thank you for this. Thanks for having me been a delight. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening to This Good Word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. 
One is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash this good word. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books, and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook, uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together.